from the top. Okay. Drop that. Yeah. Feel the funk, y'all. From Alpha to Omega, VHS to Beta, PlayStation to Sega, my skill is still greater. The sickest thing since BD, wicked like BG, with my life crooked like the left finger on ET. Please believe me, this be the realest thing I ever Hi everyone, welcome to Sends and Sufferers. I am your host today. My name is Madison Stevie, and I will be doing a podcast takeover today where I will be interviewing Mario about some questions for my master's degree in communication studies. In this episode of Sends and Suffers, I will be discussing and asking Mario a few questions about uh, rhetorical devices. Um, so I'm obtaining my master's from the University of North Texas in communication studies, and I'm in a class on rhetoric right now. And rhetoric is essentially a communication division that focuses on philosophy, persuasion, and essentially anything that a person is doing to communicate, whether it's what you're wearing, what you're doing, how you're speaking, how you're saying something uh, can fall under something rhetorical. So what I'm interested in talking about today and asking Mario questions about is the rhetorical devices that can be found in rock climbing. Some of the concepts I wanted to talk about before I start interviewing and asking questions just so people have some context are uh, one, the process of naming, which is a highly symbolic act in rhetoric, as noted by Macaro, uh, which is essentially saying there is great power in naming as naming an item or a person or a culture is often done by dominant cultural groups. And the naming that takes place by these groups is highly interpretive and the object that is named is very heavily influenced and even perceptually changed by the name given. So the rock climbing community has been a predominantly white male community since its start. And the rules of outdoor rock climbing, the names, things like that, uh, were all created when essentially whenever somebody bolts their first climb and they ascend it, they can choose the name of it. And so a lot of the names that have been put in outdoor climbs have been done by white males. And there's been a lot of offensive naming towards uh, minority groups and women and just a lot of different groups. When it started in the 1960s is kind of when a lot of this stuff became popular. Um, a lot of routes were just overtly sexist and racist and homophobic. And I think this is really pertinent to understanding rock climbing today as we're working towards being more inclusive, uh, just because the naming tradition of outdoor climbs has been under intense scrutiny recently. And many note that these offensive names are unwelcoming and they're not reflective of the inviting community that rock climbers love about the sport. So that's kind of what naming is and how it's relevant to climbing. Next, I wanted to talk about uh, the wild and how that's kind of a social and human construction. Some of the work from Tiffany Lewis uh, has, she's written pieces about suffragists using outdoor excursions as representations of women deserving rights. And essentially the metaphor is that the outdoors, like the wild quote unquote that we perceive are these geographical locations, but the wild itself is just something our culture chases and it's a social construction. The wilderness is just what people perceive as hardly marked by humans. So without this human marker, the idea of accomplishing something with very little human agency and human decision on it sounds really appealing to many Americans who live in cities that have already been created through human agency. So, you know, like dominating fields and turning that, like turning pastures from the woods, like things like that is considered very marked by human agency. Um, so that's part of the appeal of rock climbing is that rock walls are typically very little marked by humans. The really only things that are marked are the bolts that are in the wall. 
So when people ascend these walls, when individuals ascend them, they feel an accomplishment because they've done something that they perceive that many others are not able to do. And that's what a lot of uh, civil rights movements, especially suffragists in the early 1900s used. Many women took part in mountaineering and hiking to show that women were just as capable as men when it, in the wild and when it came to conquering and dominating the wild and how that transferred to politics. So really conquering the wild uh, can also act as a symbolic act that represents capability, strength, and the ability to dominate something. And this conquering also comes from imperialistic ideologies, as empires often turn towards mountains as forms of expressing domination and strength. So instead of spreading empires too thin and conquering new territories, venturing upwards into mountains was a really big symbolic act of an empire's power and bravery and superior skills to other empires. And this imperializing desire is still around today as completing difficult mountain excursions and climbs is incredibly revered in our culture. So the outdoors have become a social construction of the wild. When people have been influenced by the imperialistic view, it's as something that they have to conquer and dominate through their own power. And then the last thing we'll talk about is as climbing has been a white male dominated sport historically, there's been a huge push to create a more inclusive environment. But as we talk about inclusive inclusivity today, I want to focus on the way bodies themselves function as a rhetorical device. So black bodies have historically been viewed as in reference to white bodies. So the white heterosexual male is noted in a lot of research as the quote unquote norm and other embodiments of the human body hold a perceived less value than the white body. Uh, that's something that one of the primary tenets of the Black Lives Matter movement is to affirm the lives of black queer and trans folks, disabled folks, undocumented folks, folks with records, women and all black lives along the gender spectrum. That's essentially just working to create and combat that idea that white bodies are the norm to give um, agency and decisions and choice making back to black and brown bodies and bodies that don't function as what would be considered normal. Uh, so those are kind of the things that I based my interview questions around. Uh, Mario, just to start, can you share a little bit about yourself and your experience as a black climber? So I've been climbing roughly since 2004. Realistically, I can't, I've been having so much fun, so I've lost track of time. And I have just always associated with being the token black guy wherever I go, uh, especially here in Texas and everywhere I've gone. And, you know, for a long time, it worked out well for me because if I ever had friends or people, they're like, I'll oh, just look for the black guy at the crag. Just being identified as the black guy at the crag. And then even growing up as a child, I'm just used to navigating and growing up in white spaces and understanding that. Within these spaces, you have to make the dominant culture feel comfortable, regardless of however you think, feel or what your concerns are. So, yeah. So that's like in a nutshell, my experience as a whole with like in the climbing industry as a whole. Now it's kind of changing, obviously, because, you know, uh, the climbing is becoming a much more inclusive sport, you know, for I guess the best way to say it is for a long time. I just didn't realize I was the only one surfing around on these waves that look like me. But at the same time, you know, I was very lucky that I had a lot of people supporting me and encouraged me to continue to surf these waves. However, it has always been kind of lonely and it's always been things that you just can't relate to. And it's a cultural thing, you know, much like people going to church, talk about their experiences growing up in that. If you grew up in Colorado, the mountains, there's just cultural things that are just across the board and they're regional and cultural. I've always had the privilege of all of them, but cultural until lately. And it's, it's been quite refreshing and a blessing. Yeah, thank you. Uh, can you talk a little bit about kind of the racial politics that that's happening in the climbing world right now? So with my understanding, and I want to first give the caveat, you know, I am not the foremost expert on all of these topics. Right now, there's a big issue of why bother 
and why not? And I think that is the two questions. You have a huge portion of people, predominantly white males or just other people who, who don't care and think that like names, root names, changing these things, the culture is as diverse as you think it is, you know, or people just don't join the sport or, you know, it's always available. No one says they can't be here. And, you know, it's just not the case. You know, there's a lot of barriers and we won't talk about the socioeconomic barriers. The example that I always like to use is imagine your first day at the lunch table. It's terrifying. First day you walk into the lunchroom, you're waiting for someone to scoot over. And even then, if someone scoots over and lets you in and you really don't identify with them, you're not going to not say yes. You're yeah. going to say yes because you want to be feel accepted. You want to feel cultured. And then from that moment on, you have to decide, am I going to code switch to make sure I continue to be accepted at this table? Mm -hmm. Or am I going to bounce around and find a table that I really do feel comfortable with? I'm happy to know that this table accepts me. I'm happy to know that this table wants me to be here. But at the same time, I don't, I might not feel entirely comfortable and as free as I want. And I think that's the, what's really happening a lot in the climbing industry. A lot of people are just understanding like that is the struggle that people are really having. And the struggle is manifested or exacerbated in root names and sexist practices talking about like women, uh, not as being as strong as men or, you know, which, you know, Alex Puccio, Emily Harrington, if you guys haven't actually read her recent story that just came out. Wow. I think those are been some of the consistent practices. Those are like, you know, why bother? And it, it I think the why the last of the why bother community is really, you know, don't change it if it's not broken. I think the issue is, is we're not so much trying to fix it as we are trying to innovate it and bring it into the modern age. And I think that's the big thing. And rock climbing gear and equipment moves in the modern age. It's time for the culture as a whole to move into the modern age. And then the why not community, we're just simply asking like, why not? Like, what's the downside? Like, tell me like what the downside. Yeah, it might be a little uncomfortable. Yeah, there might be a little frustration and strife. Yeah, it might be a little bit of growing pains, but the upside is so, 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 so big. Like it is just massive. And when you try to weigh out the two, the hard part is getting people to not weigh in their emotions and their feelings into this. I think if you can separate those, which I totally understand, rock climbing is an ego-based sport. It's really hard for people to do that. But if you can just pull back, look at it from much more of like a pragmatic view, you realize, wow, we can make this whole thing a lot better. It affects climbing across the board, like commercially, privately, everything improves. Once you start bringing more people with more diverse backgrounds, it's just been proven. And a diverse group is a more effective group. Absolutely. It seems uh, from my understanding, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement really like back in June when the protests started mm -hmm. and uh, the rallies, a lot of businesses took different stands to really like innovate change into their company base. And something really big was, you know, Mountain Project uh, saying that they are going to get rid of all the offensive names and that they now have like a reporting feature. So mm -hmm. people can get rid of offensive names and change them out for more inclusive names. So when you're looking at the Black Lives Matter movement in terms of the most recent surge, how do you see that really applying to changing climbing for the better? That's kind of a complicated issue because there is an underlining conflict with the Mountain Project plugging app. Uh, and if you look at my, if you guys take a moment, listen to my last uh, episode, episode 11 with Melissa Otu, and I'll briefly touch on that. Just putting the button is one thing. And it's like... <sighs> It, putting the button is the same problem with separation, separate but equal. It's not. And it's like it might be equal as far as on paper, but the starting point 
is very different from everybody. And how does this relate to the Mountain Project thing? To the best of my understanding, basically, it wasn't about just putting the button on. It was the data that we were trying to capture. And in this day and age, data is king. Data is everything. If they would have done it a different way, the data that would have come from it would have allowed them to figure out how to make this more of an inclusive place instead of just erasing it. And, you know, just erasing it is one thing. And that's like, you know, it's the same difference as whitewashing, you know, silence is violence. And, you know, now you're just taking it away and it still doesn't attack the issue with the route developers. It still doesn't attack you issues with communities. It still doesn't tackle a lot of different issues. So I want to be very clear that like, this is a much more complicated issue that needs to be unpacked with just changing the names and route and mountain project having their flagging feature. There's a lot of information that's being left on the table and uh, that's just not okay. But however, on the, you know, playing devil's advocate here, the idea that they do have a feature like that is massive and it is a huge step in the right direction. And it's allowing people to start understanding like, like what's not okay. Because, you know, when you live in your own microcosm in the middle of nowhere, 10 sleep, Wyoming, which amazing <laughs> place, beautiful place. However, you live in this little microcosm and what's culturally acceptable for you in that microcosm is great. But if you're like any other route developer like myself, like I want more people to climb on my route. I want a diverse group of people and I want to more than anything else, share the experience of, dude, these movements were cool. These things were great. I think the big thing is, is now we have a way with that to start slowly introducing change to those communities and to those developers and those things. But ultimately it is a step in the right direction, whether it's a flawed step or not. It is a step in the right direction. Yeah, for sure. I, I hadn't thought of it yet as it is just kind of a colorblind approach. Like, oh, mm -hmm. we're just going to step back and remove like, oh, we don't see color. So we're just going to add that. But it, yeah, you're right. That doesn't unpack all of the like biases that no. went into those names and addressing and really changing those. Yeah. I mean, and when someone says, oh, I don't see color. I mean, that's the next that's the next racist statement that you could say is to someone saying like, you know, I don't like you because of your color. I think most people would rather you tell them I don't like you because of your color than staying. I don't see color because I don't see color means I don't validate you. So what you're basically saying when I don't see color is you're admitting that there is a problem. There is definitely something that needs to be worked on. However, you know, I don't see color for you. So we can maybe like work on this, but we're going to work on this on our terms. We're going to work on this on the way we see it best. And the dominant culture, as you mentioned in your intro that that's just imperialism that's just the dominant culture being able to name or do or set the terms of engagement and i think what needs to happen and what people are starting to realize is you no longer get to set the terms of engagement that really needs to be changed you know going back to that and kind of beating a dead horse here but going back to that statement of color why is it the most racist thing because you're just whitewashing it again. It's the same thing as the button. You're just removing someone's existence. And let me be very clear. It does not matter whether you are black, brown, LBGTQ, non-binary. If you don't associate with whatever the world consider, considers as the standard gender norms, racial norms, then you are considered the other. And mm -hmm. that is the issue that we're trying to tackle. Like no one should have to feel like the other, but the reality of the situation is they do. Yeah. I, I think like my first experiences with that was when, uh, like a group of us went to Waco mm -hmm. and back in January was my first time going nice. and yeah, I was super excited, but that was like also my first time realizing the difficulty of V zeros and I like outside and I was really frustrated and 
somebody made a comment like they were like, well, you know, like these are all put up in the 60s by white guys in their 40s who are really tall. And I was like, that does change it. Like that absolutely changes like the significance of what this route means to me and to other people climbing it and bodies that are different than like the dominant group that really created a lot of these classic climbs and decided Mm -hmm. what they are and what they should mean to people. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a lot of stuff that was originally put in place by a dominant culture that doesn't quite fit or Mm -hmm. yeah, there just needs to be some adjustment and more way, way, way more room for other people to have a place at the table to really put that work in. Yeah. I would like to add a caveat to that too. I definitely think what we're talking about is more of the culture and the soul. I definitely want to be very clear with like, and this is just like me flipping, you know, from the coach hat to the route developer hat, like grades are subjective and yeah. grades are really determined by the bulk of the community climbing them and eventually coming to a consensus. With that being said, you know, the difference between indoor and outdoor rock climbing is night and day. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people have a hard time with the learning curve of climbing outdoors because I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to devalue your experience. But I do want to give the caveat that like route door rock climbing is just massively harder than yeah. indoor rock climbing. And also I think it's just a learning curve. Like any of you guys listening that are swimmers, big time swimmers, like tell me the difference between swimming in a pool and a lake and open water. It's very, 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 very different experience. Mm-hmm. And though you're doing much of the same motions, the same actions, the little nuances, the tricks, the tips, just your whole approach to it has to change. And you're going through this massive learning curve and it almost feels like you're relearning how to rock climb. But I do agree with you though, those people who put it up, yeah, they're big, they're tall. And at that time and age, they were, it was majority of people like them involved in it. Now I think grades are starting to become more consistent. And this mm-hmm. is also kind of leads into the problem where you, that once a girl sends something, it's not as much as I think it used to be, but they used to downgrade stuff all the time. Yeah. And yeah, it's just bullshit. But I do want to give that little caveat because from a coaching and a routes developer hat, the step is so, 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 so different. And I think most people underestimate it a lot. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so yeah, so speaking as a route developer for yourself, we can move into, um, I don't know if you want to talk about some of your work in Utah, if you're ready for that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We can, we can bring that up. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Uh, so we didn't actually have a chance to develop any routes in Utah. We didn't, we were not able to develop any routes in Utah due to requiring permits and you just got to obey the laws of the land here, especially if we're trying to do something, uh, culturally to move the narrative forward, you can't just go around breaking the law. I mean, you know ask for permit, ask for forgiveness, never for permission. Yeah, that might work a lot of times, but not when you're do, trying to do something of this magnitude. And the purpose of the gathering in Utah was to bring a bunch of black and brown individuals together. And it's part of this bigger project and this bigger idea where we're really trying to bring us all together, do something monumental for the community, whether it be bolting, establishing a new route, or really getting this group of people together to figure out how can we best create some form of media, some form of content that really shows the diversification that is happening in the community. Uh, Some of these people are industry leaders. Some of these people are really kind of leading the way in a lot of different ways and not in the more traditional sense of, you know, bolting, developing. Some of these people are really activists in small communities. And it's really kind of about bringing a powerhouse together and going from there. And the way that this trip really kind of panned out with COVID, the reality of it was, is we didn't get to get everybody together, but we Mm -hmm. all did communicate quite a bit via email, text, phone calls. And then when we, when the small group of us were able to get together, it was magical. 
you know, I had a rude awakening, never climbing in the Indian Creek before. As long as I've been climbing, never went there. Regret it now, highly. And, you know, it's kind of actually kind of funny. That place, you doesn't matter how strong you are. It's more about a skill and it's more about technique. And realistically, the problem that what we're talking about and tackling is really the same thing. doesn't matter how strong or whatever you have going on. It really is about, you know, empathy, you know, transparency, and really kind of like learning the soft skills that we need in order to move this narrative forward. And the whole purpose and everything that came out of it, how as we as individuals, what can we bring the table and then combine together as a team to really make a statement and say that like the industry is changing, the culture is changing. Mm -hmm. This is the way that we believe that we need to nudge it in. And we encourage you to stand with us in solidarity and move in that direction. And that's really what came forth of it. And we're going to be meeting again soon, uh, hopefully in the spring and yeah. getting the group together again. But um, that is you know, the big plan. So it was a great thing. Uh, James Q, Jeremy Collins invited me, Danny, Lynn, uh, Renan, there, Taylor. There's a lot of people involved and all of those people are amazing people. Yeah. So from your perspective, um, as somebody that occupies like a black body who is there with black and brown bodies, how how do you feel that these bodies together, like gathering, how do you feel like that's going to impact the inclusivity of climbing? Just like your, your future perception of all of these meetups continuing. Do you see like these gatherings and all of your bodies in one space, like changing climbing and what, what ways do you kind of see the occupying of more space with more people of color changing it? I so if you're familiar with like how a tsunami works and when that wave comes in, the first thing that happens is the shoreline draws back so far and it's like you know you watch what hurricanes you watch all these things happen the water draws back so far and that's the first sign and i think us all getting together is the first sign of this tidal wave of change coming in and it's scary let's just be honest it's i mean tsunamis are terrifying i don't want to be near one but a cultural emotional one like this is not something we can avoid. This yeah. is not something that we can get away of. And I think all these bodies in this space basically really showed that like this wave is coming. Like this is happening. Like whether you like it or not, this is happening. And we need to get in front of it because if we don't get in front of it and don't start having conversations about it and we don't at least start talking about like how this makes people feel and what's going on and just let the echo chamber fire around in the brain a little bit. When it does happen, and for some people, it will be gentle. Some For some people, it will be rough. But if we're at least talking about this, we are at least having the ability to empathize. And if we can empathize with people, we can all get through this conversation. We can all get through this. But if we're not talking and we're not empathizing, then we're polarized. And mm -hmm. that's really what's going to happen. And so I think the big, the big thing that's going to come out of this is this is what the future of this sport looks like. And yeah. the future of this sport looks like is a massively inclusive group of black, brown, white, yellow, however you want to say it, you know, purple, green, blue bodies all in this space. And this is what it looks like. We all need to learn how to culturally work with each other, personally work with each other, merge all those things, and then continue to input that into the climbing community as a whole. Because climbing, you know, the nature of climbing really hasn't changed. Maybe the way by which we develop it and make it and discover it has changed, but the, the sheer act of it hasn't changed. And that's kind of a pretty awesome when you think about it, because because that hasn't changed, 
realistically, there is no complaints. If you're complaining about it, you're just complaining about who's there now. And if you are complaining about who's there now, you now have to ask yourself why. And I don't think if you can't start with why, and you have to start with I, then I think you should really, really reevaluate what your core values are as a person, not even relating to climbing, but just as a human being. I think that's something that's important. Yeah, for sure. Hey guys, once again, this is Madison Stevie. I wanted to thank you guys so much for tuning in to listen to my podcast takeover with Mario. I am, I've been rock climbing for two years and this is something that I'm really passionate about and really passionate about the communication behind rock climbing. That's been one of my uh, focuses since undergrad is focusing on the communication that rock climbing offers and how it can change communication for more than just the climbing community. I am still in school. And if you're interested in following me or reaching out to me, my Instagram is at Madison Stevie with it's spelled S-T-U-E-V-E-E-E for the Instagram handle. But uh, I'm really interested in diversity, equity, inclusion, and the climbing community. So if you're interested in reaching out, if you want to hire me, that would be really awesome. So thank you guys so much. Hey there, ladies and gentlemen. Madison is awesome. I've had the pleasure of working with her at Summit for quite a while now, and it's hard to find good people. But luckily, Summit has quite a bit of them there. If you guys haven't checked out Summit Climbing Gym and DFW, you should definitely do it because we are the spot to be at. All right, guys, the most important thing is the people and the things that you trust. And I trust Beyond Clothing. They're amazing. I know I say this almost every episode. Yeah, they are my sponsors. And I say this too. I would use them if they weren't because their stuff is bomb proof. If you guys want, please go to beyondclothing.com. Use the promo code alwaysready. Save yourself a little coin and support this podcast. But their clothing is for everyone and it is made for every condition on this big, beautiful globe that we live in. So go check them out. All right, let's get back to the show. Um, so on a more personal scope of your time in Utah, uh, you mentioned at the beginning when you were just introducing yourself, you know, you always felt like you like were the token Mm -hmm. black guy, like in the gym and just in Texas in general. So what, what did it feel like? Did it feel different being in that space occupied with people who maybe also felt like tokens in their area and just like being with people who you didn't feel like you were maybe the token? Yeah, I think it, I think it, it definitely did, but. I had that experience actually a few years ago, that breakthrough experience, hanging out with my friend Bethany McHale at Color the Crag. And I think Mm -hmm. that was really the experience that kind of broke that ground for me because that was the first time that like I was actually really anxious, nervous. I had a lot of anxiety about the things that I was going to talk about because I had just never really shared passionately the thing that I care about and I love with people that just look like me and have my own cultural backgrounds. I mean, I'm so used to being the token black guy that all, even the phrases, the analogies, everything that I say is really based around white culture. Mm -hmm. So they can pick up the nuances, you know, how to move your feet, how to move your body, how to do all these things. It's like all these cultural references or these sports references or all these things. They've always been really centered around that culture and kind of taking it back really figuring out how I can put, you know, as I like to say, a little bit more style, a little bit more flair (laughs) into it because we fabulous. 
you know, I think that was the big thing. And it was nerve wracking at first, but it was so accepting and it was so inviting. And I think the thing that was is everybody felt a little bit of the same way if you were working in the same capacity. And then the people who were there to receive the information, you know, they knew, you know, they knew this is different. They knew this is new. And I think they came in with no expectations. And I think what we did in Utah is the byproduct of those kind of events that happened really in the early heyday of mm -hmm. this march toward inclusivity in our sport. And so there's been a lot of events that happened leading up to this. I think that have primed my mind, my spirit uh, for the for what we're talking about today. Yeah. Yeah, that's super cool. Uh, yeah, I was hoping Color the Crag would come back this year, but I don't think it is, right? Uh, they announced something that's happening. I think they're maybe doing a virtual thing. But, okay. Uh, I would cool. definitely go to their website and check it out. Yeah, for sure. Um, so um, I know you weren't able to put any routes up in Utah, mm -hmm. but I'm assuming that's in plan still, like you're working on permits and stuff. Yeah, the, the people who organize the trip are still working on those details. Okay, cool. So, you know, as a route developer, what do you think the impact of people of color and more women getting out there and developing routes? What do you think that those climbs will bring to the table that will really um, diversify climbing, just outdoor climbing in general? This doesn't sound really silly. But I don't think as far as the routes themselves, I don't think they're going to bring really much anything because people are just going to go and climb them. And there are quite a few female developers out there, mm -hmm. uh, black and brown ones. I'm not exactly sure, uh, but there are quite a few females out there doing it now. Um, but the route themselves, I think, aren't really going to do much except just be really cool rock climbs and really <laughs> cool movement. But I think the person behind it is really what's going to bring forth change. And I think the labor of love, because the labor of love has a different intent going into it. And I think that is really what's going to bring forth change because people are not going to be putting it up for braggadocious reasons. They're not going to be putting it up just to be, just to be hard, to be hard for whatever reasons that were in the past. And I don't want to take away from any other developer. Route developing is a blue collar dog work job. <laughs> so let's just be very clear. It is dirty work and then you're spending your own money, your own time. You're not getting paid to do this. This mm -hmm. is just dog work. But you do it for the love of the community. You do it for that love of that area. And some people in the past did it because they were narcissistic and they wanted to just do their own thing and they hated human beings and they didn't want to be around people. That's a <laughs> thing, you know. But the point is, it's more about who is doing it and the intent of why they're doing it than so much the route themselves. And allowing more people with the intent to make climbing better for everyone, period. I think you will start changing the narrative and tone because those are turning into the leaders and the leaders set the tone. Yeah. Cool. Um, we'll start kind of wrapping it up, but one of my, another question is, so we talked about the, uh, you know, the imperialistic tendencies mm -hmm. kind of of climbing. Do you perceive that as a problem or just kind of a part of it that like just a part of the sport or do you see it as something that could potentially be reshaped? Oh, it's definitely going to be reshaped. Um, you know, it's just the way that, things could get be gotten away with for a long time, you know, just like I'm here, I'm going to take this piece of property. I'm going to do this, whether it belongs to this person, you know, like, the, like, I mean, the sheer issue of like taking native American lands and climbing on their stuff is like, it's just a big issue and it's been around forever. And going back to that whole thing of ask forgiveness, not permission. I mean, I think if a lot of people would have worked on building relationship and building community, I think we wouldn't have that problem. Mm -hmm. And I, it is a problem still, 
I don't understand the full complexity of those problems, nor do I understand where the tumultuous nature outside of that little scope that I do hear about and I see online. But I do know it's still a problem and it's definitely still a thing. I think the big thing is, is we just have to do things with compassion and we really just have to do things with caring about how other people feel. It doesn't mean that you can't do the thing. It doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. It just means that like you just you just have to be a part of the solution. And that is thinking more inclusively. And it might not happen now, but it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think if you really empower communities, empower people instead of just taking it, I think what you'll find is people support you and you'll get communities behind you. You'll get people behind you. And this whole route developer thing won't turn into this solo lone wolf thing anymore. It mm-hmm. turns into like a group of people, communities supporting you. I mean, a prime example if you've watched uh, any previous Real Rocks, the whole thing that happened in Joe's Valley about them like not really liking climbers, thinking that they're weirdos. And then now they embrace each other. And mm-hmm. that previous Real Rock video is really, really, really a great example of how to see how it worked. Granted, that was done by, you know, white people, all predominantly done that way. And so I do think if it would have been someone of color, I don't know how they would have responded. I don't know how those communities would have responded. I, you know, in my heart of hearts, I believe, and I, I want to believe that they would respond the same way. Mm-hmm. But that is a magical example of how these things can be fixed. I think it's just going to be different when those people don't look like them that are coming into their communities and in these small rural mountain towns and they start working here and they start buying homes there and they start want to live here. And, you know, because it's a common thing, you know, you start developing, you start loving, falling in love with the area. You want to be there. And that's it. I mean, my friend, Danny, Prime example, she lives in a small little town and she loves being there. It's where she wants to be. But, you know, some things were not too inviting in the beginning. Things are changing slowly, Mm -hmm. but we're coming. And I think that's just the basic thing I really want to say. Like, we're not going anywhere. We live here, too. Yeah, we're coming. And these beautiful areas, we want to show them to the world, but we want to work with you, show them to the world. And I think that's the big thing. Like, we're trying to work with you, not against you. and we all understand that like that really takes building a relationship in order for that to happen. And we want to do that with you, you know, and we're happy to meet you in the middle, but we don't want to stay in the middle. We want us, you know, to hug it out and be all encompassing. Yeah. Yeah. That that reminds me a lot of like, like still Waco tanks and their connections to like indigenous people, Mm -hmm. you know, and you know, to even climb in Waco every year, you have to watch a video that talks about, the respect that you have to show for the environment and what their expectations are. And there's a lot of rules, you know, that, you know, you have to have a guide to go into certain areas and that guide is strict and, you know, climbs have been shut down because they realize there's native art there, you know, like there's just a lot of respect that the majority of climbers do show towards Waco. And there's just a lot of respect there. And it's just a really nice mutual, mutually benefiting relationship now because it brings so many people in and so many people have the opportunity to view an area that's so beautiful and so iconic for climbing, but it only works when the climbers show that respect and, you know, pledge to not mess with or remove any of the indigenous cultures and paintings that have been left there and the markings that are there. And, you know, to really not prioritize climbing over that history and over the culture and over the special like ritualistic things that have taken place there. You know, it is such Mm -hmm. a special ceremonious place for um, the indigenous people that occupy it there. And I think that that's a really good example of what people should be striving for when cultivating relationships, you know, like respecting the regulations that are there and 
upholding them and working to make sure that other climbers in the area are upholding it too. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And I think the big thing is, and I hope from this conversation that people really take away that like, there are three things that really need to happen. We all need to talk and we all need to communicate and we all just need to love on one of each other. I mean, that's just really what needs to happen. That's the first thing. The second thing is we all need to be stewards of the new people coming in. You can be steward, you can be a mentor. If you're not a part of the solution, you're a part of the problem. Mm -hmm. Indoor gyms, totally different story. You know, that's a commercial product. People are coming there. It's a whole different animal. We can get on that another day. <laughs> but outdoors, like it's, it's kind of all of our job to make sure these rad places stay rad so mm -hmm. we can all climb them. And thirdly, and I think this is probably the most important thing is it's like, it's just simply the right thing to do. Yeah. Really just teaching people, showing them, allowing them to see how these places, how these things have been respected for so long or how they've been disrespected or how they haven't been protected for so long and allowing these new people coming in with diverse ideas, backgrounds, and just new ways of thinking. I mean, the younger generation, prime example, I know this is like really wild, but I still think it's hilarious that they completely shut down Donald Trump's uh, rally in Oklahoma that he oh, had yeah. by making all those <laughs> fake things. And everybody laughs at it and everybody's like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. These kids just, uh, but the fact of the matter that they made a sitting president fly all the way to Oklahoma for something that wasn't actually going to happen. Yeah, like a sold out stadium. <laughs> yeah, and they bamboozled everyone. I mean, really? Really? That's not <laughs> impressive? Nah, y'all go. You know, Generation Alpha, y'all are killing the game. I'm, <laughs> I'm a big fan and I'm very excited to see what you guys are going to do in the future. But I want you to know, like, this conversation is for you. This conversation is for anyone, honestly. But the point is, is like we're bringing people in. And I think it's very, very, very important that we all take a little bit of ownership together. And I think we continue to make this the rad sport that it is. Yeah. So you own a guiding company. Is that a part of when you're guiding is like imposing the ethicalities of climbing? Like, do you spend time when you're taking people outside for their first time to really show them what's expected of them as like a person who's going into nature and climbing for the first time. With guiding services, it's a little different. We definitely respect the ethics of the area and we talk about the ethics of the area and what needs to happen while we're out here. And it's kind of this double-edged sword because, you know, you do have people paying to get a service and you also have a time crunch to provide that service. So we definitely talk about it and we definitely bring it up with each individual area. The biggest thing that when our service is really is just setting the expectation for people so they still fall in love with the sport. Kind of going back to what we were talking before, indoor V0, outdoor V0, two entirely different animals mm -hmm. and really setting those expectations so people still fall in love with the sport and still have a respect for what's going on instead of just kind of getting really frustrated and thinking that this is garbage. And so do I wish we had a little bit more time to kind of get into the ethics and get into all of that? I would love to have that conversation with my customers more often, but those are really kind of campfire conversations. Um, mm -hmm. When you're like, this is a really double-edged sword and being a business owner, it's kind of one of those things you got to walk, but like we have a job to do. People have paid for a service. We expect to provide them a high quality service and at a timely and orderly fashion. Mm -hmm. And we want to bear our soul and we want for them to become a part of our community and our family. However, they are a customer and we don't always get to do that. And some people don't want to have that. And, you know, owning a business, 
I mean, if they don't want to have the conversation, they don't want to have the conversation. They still paid for the service and I'm still going to provide it to them. Yeah. But if they do want to have the conversation, I, I definitely, definitely am super excited to have it. It usually is a campfire conversation or an end of the day kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about this briefly. People ask us, ask me or ask my guides questions throughout the go of it, throughout the day of it. But once again, like we are a professional company. We are trying to provide a quality service and experience so people continue to buy our services. Uh, And it's a really hard line to walk, but it really depends on the customer. Yeah, I think I mean, I think that's how, um, you know, indoor companies are operating now too. most indoor companies don't offer outdoor guiding services. You know, Mm -hmm. like we obviously refer like people to you whenever people are interested and inquire about it. But yeah, it's kind of one of those things where it's like not every customer may want that experience. And so you know, giving them what they want in a way where they can still respect it for that time being. And then as they want to take more ownership and as they want to be more autonomous in it, then I guess, you know, that would be when those conversations really take flight. Yeah, absolutely. Because we're really stewards when we're out there. You know, Mm -hmm. we're just keeping the rules simple, keeping it easy and keeping the fun level super, super, super high. Yeah. But realistically, we are stewards and we're just laying the groundwork. And The biggest thing that we try to do as a guiding company, especially when we take people to areas where they'll continue to go on their own, is just really lay out like the hard, fast rules of the area. And once again, you should always ask why. But if they don't ask why, we just hope that they understand like this is the rule and the rule is not to be broken. And if they decide to ask why, we'd love to have that conversation with them. But the big thing is, it's just like laying out the groundwork. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, that's all my questions I have. So thank you so much for sitting down with me and talking about your experiences and what you see for the future of the outdoor climbing industry. Do you have any closing remarks or anything? Uh, I would say keep doing what you're doing because conversations like this and people with your heart and your passion is really what's going to change this industry and change this culture and change this world because without that, every step forward will take five steps backwards. And I think you being willing to bring this conversation up, uh, push it forward with other people, I think is really, really important and amazing. And it warms my heart and soul and it makes me super happy. So I'm your biggest fan. And (laughs) as long as you keep doing what you're doing and doing this, I unequivocally 100% have your back. That's so nice. Thank you. Uh, Back at you, of course. Um, (laughs) Okay. Um, I don't know how to close out a a podcast. (laughs) We're done. Okay. Drop that. All right, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, that is the show. Thank you so much, Madison, for doing a takeover. It's very rare that I have people reach out to me and be like, hey, can I talk to you? It's It was a little weird, but I digged it. I really digged it. Guys, if you haven't joined our sticker club, please join. It is super fun. I have been writing personal love letters to people and letting them know how much I appreciate you support the show, how much you support everything that we do. And most importantly, I like sending out little gifts. It's fun and I want to do it to you. So go to mariastanley.com, sendsandsuffers.com, click sticker club and join. Until next time, keep sending. And if you're not suffering, there ain't no sending going on. (laughs) 